Welcome to this episode of the Decade Podcast, a podcast where we curiously explore holistic sustainability and answers to the question, how on earth can we live together? My name is Melker Larsson, and together with Jonathan Angel, we are the hosts of this show. Join us as we learn from inspiring stories from champions of sustainability and beyond. We hope to inspire you to think, act, and work for a better planet for all throughout this decade of action. In this episode, we speak with Friedrich Mubay. Amongst other things, he is an expert in biomimicry, and we delve in deep into that in this episode. For some of you, this might be new, and for some of you, this might be familiar grounds, but we try to talk about it from both a practical lens and a philosophical lens. So I think there's something in here for everyone. That's really all the introduction we need before Friedrich takes this away. So please enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode of the Decade Podcast with me, Melker, and Jonathan. Today's guest is Friedrich Mubay, and we have been dying to pick his brain about all things related to biomimicry. Welcome to the podcast, Friedrich. How are you today? Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. You're the founder and co-director of AlbaEco, an independent sustainability consultancy, which has worked with some high-impact projects, especially here in Sweden. Uh, you're also a researcher and a senior communications advisor at Stockholm Resilience Center. You've written a book about biomimicry and co-founded Nordic Biomimicry, which is a knowledge hub and education platform. You also have a PhD in coral reef ecology and natural resource management. And these are just some things to mention that you have been involved in. And today we will, to no one's surprise, talk a lot about biomimicry. And we're very excited to dive in deep into that topic. But firstly, is there anything that you would like to add on to that introduction of yourself? Who is Fredrik Mubay in 2022? Oh, interesting. It's always amazing to hear somebody else sort of reading your bio. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds more amazing than what I feel like <laughs> sometimes. And especially now during the pandemic and being in a family sort of quarantine because one of my sons has COVID. He's kind of fine but we still need to stay indoors for seven days or so so hopefully we can get out of this house arrest soon <laughs> but I'm, but uh, uh, I'm fine the uh, sun is actually shining today in Stockholm and that's nice and um, nothing else to add right now really I guess we will get into it more deeply when we start our conversation I will tell more about myself and why I'm doing what I'm doing for sure. Mm, exactly. Uh, I'm curious to hear what, what sparked your interest in biomimicry from the start? I read the book about uh, by Janine Benius, who came out. That, that book came out in 1997. I guess I didn't read it until the early 2000s, like 2001 or two or so. And I was so amazed by the uh, sort of alternative narrative in that one. Not only seeing nature as a victim of <laughs> sort of human impact, but seeing nature as a mentor and the muse, uh, source of inspiration for solutions to the sustainability challenges we have in front of us. So that was 
so nice about reading that book. And I was also sort of amazed by uh, it as a person interested in popular science, because it's a really good popular science written in a way that sort of non-specialists can read and sort of really mm. get a grasp of the complexity within this uh, field, this topic. So that was one reason. And then uh, a few years later, I was invited to write about uh, sustainable design. It was the yearbook of the Swedish Society for Nature Conservation, Naturskyddsföreningen. Mm. I did a book on green design. And then I had the sort of pleasure of writing the final chapter of that book on biomimicry. And it got a lot of positive response at that time. And since then, that was in 2004, I think. And since then, I was started to think about sort of writing a whole book in Swedish about the topic, because there have been a number of books and uh, scientific journals etc in in english but not so much in swedish so but then it took me 10 years <laughs> before <laughs> i actually got to the point where i had the time and could find the time and also got a scholarship from uh, the publisher natur och kultur to spend some time on actually writing the book but then i had i had started sort of several times already and mm. had a number of drafts on different chapters already <laughs> lying around in my digital uh, files among the digital files on my computer mm. you mentioned there uh, that you had an interest in popular science and this to me sounds like something that has uh, influenced you in a way because today you work i guess mostly as a communicator and a science communicator but uh, with the background of this PhD in coral reef ecology. So what's motivated that shift from mostly doing the actual research into then focusing more on the communication aspects of it? At some point when I was doing my PhD, I was even criticized because the text I produced also in a scientific context were too easy to understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was too much of a communicator. It almost like my supervisor advised me to write more <laughs> sort of complex texts. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons, of course. And then sort of I realized I thought it was most fun to produce the manuscripts of the scientific articles and then the, the whole process with peer review, revising many, many times and not even, so that was kind of tiresome. And I also realized that there are so many scientific papers written every year and so few of them are actually read and mm -hmm. even less of them, even more few of them are sort of uh, communicated to the broader public or to decision makers, etc. So, and working with coral reefs at that time, uh, I was in the sort of middle of my PhD thesis when coral reefs around the world for the first time showed sign of so-called coral reef bleaching because of global warming. It was the first mass bleaching event. And when corals turn pale or white, that's a clear sign of that they are soon going to die if not the, if the temperatures of the uh, uh, ocean water is not decreasing after a while. So, so it was really sort of a panic situation among us coral reef scientists. And then I realized I would love to work much more on sort of communicating why this is a bad thing, not only for coral reefs and biodiversity, but also for people. So I changed kind of the course of my uh, research at that time from problem description and ecotoxicology sort of uh, uh, looking into how much different coral species can tolerate when it comes to pollution, etc., to 
starting describing the benefits of coral reefs when they are healthy and when we manage them in a wise way. So mm. the, the field of ecosystem services, as we call it, all the benefits, the natural benefits of them. So, And that, from that, it was the sort of step to start communicating that in a popular science context was not that long, actually. And uh, I thought it was really important at that time to communicate the science on coral reefs to more people to change how we deal with these issues. So that was mm. the... <laughs> Oh, lovely. I think you came quite think, natural at that time. So yeah, it's perfect. And I think it's a, a really an issue of, of today that uh, science is not getting out there as much as it needs to. So I think it's a very important role that you're playing there. And uh, Melker and I come back to it in our conversation sometimes. And I, I mean, it's the ongoing conversation within the climate science world as well. That to to how do we get across this? crucial information to the general public and for example me and Melker come back to it in our conversations as well like yeah okay we have these conversations in the podcast in our education and stuff but are we just talking in our own silos or in our own bubble mm. how do we actually get across and and make uh, impact on a larger scale so i think it's a uh, fantastic work that you're doing shedding light on on this uh, important uh, information so thank you for that but I'm thinking, should we dive right into it then, to a bit more on biomimicry? Could you could you start off a bit explaining what what is actually biomimicry, and maybe perhaps what is it not? Biomimicry is sort of, of course, it uh, has its basis as a word in old Greek language. So bios is life, and mimesis uh, is to imitate or emulate. So it is about sort of looking into nature, understanding it better, and then being inspired or even copy what we see to solve some of our own problems. Mm. So that is the sort of basis for biomimicry. But then there are different fields as well within biomimicry, so to say. So if you're into biomimicry, you are often sort of focusing on that the smart solutions that come out of being inspired by nature will also be sustainable from an environmental point of view. But there are also biomimetics, for instance, that not necessarily come up with a more sustainable solution. It can be an extremely smart solution being inspired by nature, like Velcro is one of the most sort of uh, well-known examples uh, uh, but that is often produced by uh, nylon and polyester, which are fossil materials. So it's not <laughs> perhaps sustainable per se, but it's still a, a sort of innovation inspired by nature. So there you can see different sort of subfields within biomimicry emphasizing different things. But we, I also see a trend now where also people in, who are into biomimetics are emphasizing more and more the sustainability angle of it. So there's definitely a tendency to going in that direction for all of them so mm. and and you mentioned there that the commonality between biomimicry and something being sustainable is it automatically that way or, or there's some some ways to know that if if i mimic nature in a way does that automatically need to be sustainable or how how could one think or try to identify that those aspects often people sort of combine uh, biomimicry thinking with a design thinking process, sort of trying to come up with a solution to a complex problem or a new business idea or some new product or so. 
And then, of course, there are different steps going out into nature, see what you can be inspired by, sort of define the kind of challenge you have, and then sort of going back and also evaluating the kind of innovation or idea you come up with from a sustainability mm. perspective. So that is kind of the sort of last part of this uh, cycle of different steps in the design thinking process. So then there's, it's extremely important, of course, that you evaluate it against uh, different principles of nature and sustainability to make sure that you come up with a sustainable product, not only a smart product that is inspired by nature. So, And there there's, can also be worth mentioning that there are things in nature that we that we don't want to imitate mm. or copy, of course. Nature can be quite cruel. <laughs> mm. Mm. There are spiders eating their mates after they <laughs> have had intercourse, for instance, and there are fungi uh, invading the brains of ants, turning them into zombies to spread their <laughs> spores, etc. So there's definitely things we don't want to copy. <laughs> but that's important. And as I mentioned with Velcro, for instance, uh, it's not automatically so that you come up with a more environmentally sustainable product exactly. or innovation just because you copy or imitate or emulate some of the ideas from nature. So it's, it's really important to sort of evaluate it afterwards as well. Mm. Do not copy everything. And uh, it's also important then, again, to emphasize it doesn't automatically turn into something more sustainable just because you copy or imitate nature. Mm. No, but I think it's a great point you have there that if we can look at nature with sustainability glasses on, then we have evolution as a designer for 3.8 billion years. And it is quite uh, possible that that has led to some great solutions that are both uh, good solutions from a just intellectual perspective and also from a sustainability perspective. But I know from having studied this topic a bit, not at all to the extent that you have, but that there are different types of biomimicry that you can mimic either the shape, the process, or the system itself. Can you talk a little bit to what those different ways actually mean? Yeah, I mean, you can sort of imitate the <clears throat> the shape or, or a material in itself, like when people imitate shark skin, the properties of shark skin on a sort of microscopic level to decrease the friction against water, for instance, for a swimmer, <laughs> or using it uh, instead of painting boats with fouling paints, you can use the shark skin pattern to both sort of decrease the energy need energy need for transporting the boat or and also minimize the amount of fouling paint that is often toxic to the marine environment. So that is one thing you can do, of course, mimic the shape in itself. And Velcro, again, is another example. Um, and then it can be more about the processes that you find in nature as well, of course. And that can even be on an organizational level. There are books on sort of leadership that are <laughs> even inspired by nature, like uh, Laura Storm and Giles Hutchins, who wrote a book on re regenerative leadership. So what mm. can we learn from nature when it comes to organize ourselves in companies and organizations, and even in a sort of larger 
national state uh, perspective when it comes to democracy. There are a book about how we, what we can learn from honeybees when it comes to decision making, for instance. Mm. And I think it's a word of caution. Of course, it's even more important with sort of political science and the experience from the political process. But it's definitely interesting to see those parallels of how um, really small animals can solve really complex problems by being this swarm intelligence and what we can learn from that. So that's just sort of one example of a process. Another process that is really important is from my favorite uh, ecosystem, coral reefs again. We know that when, when we produce cement and concrete around the world, it contributes to around 8% of the global emissions of greenhouse gases because it's an energy requiring process. And also in the chemical process, when we take limestone, burn it, <laughs> On a sort of we heat it up to an extreme level, and then there there's a chemical process releasing carbon dioxide as well. So can we be inspired how by how coral reefs are producing their own limestone? Because in a coral reef, every coral organism is both like a plant, an animal, and limestone. So they produce their own concrete, and when they do it, they don't release carbon dioxide like we do. Because for every ton of cement that we produce, we, we also produce approximately one ton of carbon dioxide. But when a coral reef do the same thing, they actually sequester 1.5 ton carbon dioxide for every ton limestone they produce. So can we learn from that process? Of course, we can get a lot of benefits when it comes to decreasing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And then we, the, the, the third level is often sort of on the system level. And also there we often talk about like coral reefs and other forests, etc., where we actually don't produce any uh, waste. There is basically no waste or little waste in nature because one organism's uh, sort of waste is often somebody else's resource. And from that, of course, we can learn within the field of industrial ecology or industrial symbiosis to do the same thing with human industries, to make sure that the waste product from one industry is used in a, in a sort of production process in another industry. Uh, and there you can say that the whole circular economy movement now is to some extent actually inspired by coral reefs, forests, and other ecosystems on a system level. So. Mm. So it's quite interesting that you can find examples of biomimicry from the smallest scale to the largest scale, actually. Exactly. And you actually mentioned where I wanted to go there. But uh, first, I just heard one point as well uh, regarding the concrete process that I've heard this both in your book and uh, when Janine Benius has been speaking that nature uh, does basically chemistry and conducts difficult processes in low pressures and healthy environments. So like they they are able to make this uh, limestone in a very healthy way for the other systems as well. While we often take it to the extremes with chemistry and try to force our will upon these objects. So I think there's much interesting that can happen when we start to look in this way to see how has nature done these things. I have one other example from a friend of our, Yo Brewer, who is down in <clears throat> Barichara and he is actually using uh, trees that he's planting to attract birds and then do let the birds do the rest of the planting for him as they come and eat the berries from the trees, etc. So he's uh, allowing also the nature to do what it wants to do best by just being more of a custodian than 
with a facilitation hand instead of a forcing hand. So I think those kind of examples inspire me a lot. Um, but what you mentioned here also about circular economy is something that I wanted to ask because this in sustainability in these topics, there's a lot of different buzzwords. There's a lot of different names for similar things. Um, do you see this as a problem, especially as a communicator, that we have this way of making things complex and mean different things or mean the same things with different words? Is this something that you see in your everyday work? Yeah, definitely. And I just want to sort of comment briefly on the example yeah. of the trees and the birds as well. I think that's so interesting because when you sort of uh, facilitate self-organizing processes in nature instead of sort of forcing it, so you work with nature instead of against nature that we often do. And that is something that Janine is often talking about also, Janine Benius, on sort of the, the heat, beat and treat process that we often go about when we do our sort of industrial production uh, because we heat things up, we put it under a lot of pressure and we treat it with a lot of chemicals. While nature has to sort of work with little energy uh, in water and in normal sort of uh, pressures, body pressures. So that is so interesting in itself. But coming back to the different sort of <laughs> concepts, when I started uh, sort of my university studies, we were talking about kretsloppstänkande, <laughs> an old-fashioned word for sort of circular economy. Mm. I don't even know what you would call that in, in English, actually. But so now it's it's basically the same thing that we talk about now when we talk about circular economy and circular economy in Swedish. Uh, so, But sometimes you need new words for old concepts, and they are always tweaked a bit as well. So sometimes it's a good thing, because they all sound too sort of old-fashioned and you need to try the idea again in a new format. But sometimes it can be problematic as well. And uh, some words seem to die after a while because they are so watered down by because people have their own interpretations of them. So I think that is soon happening with sustainability, actually. And uh, maybe that's why people are talking about regenerative or cradle to cradle and circular economy, etc., because they want something new. So sometimes problematic, sometimes a good thing. Mm. Are there any um, practical examples that you see that is that is already mimicking nature, that is not branded, branded as by mimicry? You mentioned circular economy, of course, but do you have any other examples? examples that we can identify i think uh, people often ask if there are sort of any certification system or sort of things like that for biomimicry mm. and not really there is one for the cradle to cradle design that one could perhaps see as a certification system for a biomimicry sort of process or approach but other than that i think biomimicry can be a sort of a step before all these uh, sort of products and certification systems, etc., to solve some of the problems you need to solve to be certified with mm. a sustainability label, etc. So there are definitely more and more examples of things that I would label biomimicry where people don't really see it as biomimicry. They, they don't sort of <laughs> think mm. of it in those terms. We have everything also in urban ecology and city planning, people are talking about nature-based solutions and blue and green infrastructure, where you actually use natural elements of water and trees and bushes and green roofs, etc., to solve some of the problems you have in the city environment. And people 
don't often label that biomimicry, but in one sense, I would call it biomimicry. So sometimes it's not important what you call it. It's just <laughs> you want to make sure that that is happening more and more often, where you see yeah. people collaborate to solve complex problems, people that might not normally collaborate because they are in different silos. Mm. And in that sense, I think biomimicry as a process, as a sort of problem-solving process, is a really good way of getting people from different backgrounds around a sort of common theme and becoming more creative because they listen to the solutions that have come up during 3.8 of biological evolution. Mm. Yeah, totally. I think you touched on many, many important aspects there and uh, not to speak about the the need for more collaboration going forward i mean we our world is getting more and more co- complex uh, for every year and uh, collaboration between as you as you mentioned different silos becomes so much more important than uh, it's been been previous but um, we've we've spoken a little bit about what biomimicry is but if we we get a bit more practical uh, how do we go about identifying solutions and implementing them in our our projects today so say that uh, say that you're working with a management team for example who want to find ways to offer their products and services in a sustainable way how would you advise them to seek out solutions in regards to biomimicry there are many different toolboxes available for sort of different workshop formats and sort of problem solving methodologies that you can sort of get easy access to through through for instance asknature.org and biomimicryinstitute.org and we have also started to sort of collaborate with nordic partners with nordicbiomimicry.org a sort of a site for gathering all the people involved in biomimicry and also methodologies and courses etc so there are a number of resources actually out there that are easily accessible on how to do this and the ask nature website is extremely good actually because you can find so many previous examples of cases where people have run workshops with people with different backgrounds and competences and sort of describing the process in different steps, how you sort of can define your challenge, how you can go out in nature and being inspired. And and if you can't go out in nature yourself, there's a huge uh, sort of uh, collection of data in cases on uh, asknature.org, for instance, that you can sort of start uh, looking upon and uh, being inspired yourself. So you can Mm. even ask sort of, direct questions how would nature solve this problem that i have and get some cases and information back and some uh, tips on relevant uh, reading lists etc and even biologists that you could contact to start collaborate with so mm. there are mm. many many resources out there mm. nice you you kind of a- a- answered my follow-up question a little bit there but uh, so the, the way I, I understand it is that Whatever challenge we're looking to address, nature can serve as a a model. It can serve as a measure, or uh, and or in a as a mentor in a way. And a big part of this relationship is, of course, as you you mentioned, there is to listen and listen to nature. And uh, there is this um, quote from Buddhism that I really like: that a great listener is a great learner. And I find this so true in many other learning processes as well. So. Um, you kind of answer it there a bit, but could you emphasize a little bit more? How do we actually listen to nature in regards to biomimicry? Uh, are there any guidelines to follow, tools, etc.? You mentioned the Ask Nature website there. 
Yeah, the listening aspect is so important. And one thing that I have sort of experienced several times when we have run different workshops in biomimicry is that people that come from another background, when they are becoming interested in nature, they do it with another lens mm. because they might be designers, they might be sort of artists. Uh, and they, when they start doing their research on a particular organism or ecosystem to find different solutions, they come up with answers that is so important for me to listen to because they have another sort of way of looking at nature from their point of view. So getting people from different backgrounds and, and with different competences in the same room is so fruitful if you actually listen because they see other things, even in my sort of expert area, like coral reefs, they see different things that, than I have seen. So in that sense, I think learning is even more important if you want to solve problems together in these situations. Mm. Love that. So that that's yeah. amazing in itself. And then and then again, in the sort of toolboxes and methodologies, there are different ways to narrow down the challenge you have. So it will be easier to find a similar solution in nature. So uh, how would nature solve something is not perhaps the, the perfect question to ask. It could be rather to sort of, instead of saying, say, how would nature clean a house facade? It might be how does a surface in nature avoid being foiled or by some some soil particles or etc so you need to sort of first be sure that you have a clear-cut challenge that or, or problem that you want to solve and then you need to sort of biologize that into something before finding the solutions in nature that is an important mm. part of the design thinking process of biomimicry Really difficult one, but there are different steps that you can go through to do that. Mm. It's great that you mentioned this. And I, just going back a little bit further, uh, this you mentioned about collaboration and having different perspectives collide and match together. It brings to mind an episode we did with uh, Aboriginal scholar Tyson Junkaport a while back, where he spoke about these methods they had for learning and knowledge sharing in, in his community. And uh, dialogue was such a fundamental one especially if you go back in time where um, the sharing and storytelling was everything and then having multiple perspectives allow them to see bigger uh, versions of the truth the external reality so just wanted to emphasize that but also i'm interested to hear like perhaps this is taking some shape or form in boardrooms and people trying to innovate in teams of products and services how is this looking in the education sphere and uh, in schools around the world because um, i heard it mentioned somewhere that oftentimes when these decisions of sustainability are taking place that uh, the architects for example are not biologists so they don't have access to widest database of solution that there is which is nature then so what is happening in the education sphere to equip future decision makers with at least some biology knowledge uh, to learn from. This is something that I think is so important. And it's happening in some places in Sweden already, like uh, Konstfak, what is now the uh, University of Arts, Crafts and Design. We've been involved in biomimicry courses together with them and their sort of design students. And Anna Maria Orro, which I'm working with uh, in the Nordic Biomimicry Network. And she's also featured in one chapter of the book. Uh, she's been doing many of these courses at Chalmers uh, in Gothenburg, for instance, Engineering University. 
And so it's definitely happening more and more. But often it is like you go to the to, to the art or design students with some biology classes. I would love to see more of master students from the different schools collaborate in, in sort of common master's thesis and stuff like that. Because I think that is such a good arena before you are sort of really sort of mature within your own field you're still open to the influences from others in another way than when you are perhaps after your phd so i would love to see more collaboration at that level to solve some real sustainability challenges where design and engineering students work together with biologists and ecologists Mm, yeah but it's definitely happening and there's even like a master's program in in uh, at arizona state university where biomimicry institutes is working together with them where you can get a master's in biomimicry mm. so. i think this uh, is important especially as times today where problems are multi-dimensional so that solutions can't come from just one perspective and I see this happening a lot within science that uh, cross-disciplinary teams are coming together and you mentioned previously that your uh, boss at the beginning of Stockholm Resilience Center called Folke was a pioneer of ecological economics which I think is mm. a great example of uh, having the ecological and natural uh, combined with the economist approach to perhaps provide a larger fundament to take decisions and make economical decisions from so i think many types where we can have these coming together of different backgrounds is uh, really important for any problem going forward i guess and we really try to do that at stockholm resilience center with our master students because they are we i mean the sustainability science in itself as a discipline is supposed to be not only multidisciplinary but actually transdisciplinary so you come from different backgrounds we really try to gather people both from the social sciences, humanities, and the natural sciences among our master students. So it's, it's, it is definitely happening there as well. Mm, fantastic. So Pratik, I want to hear your, obviously you've uh, done have a vast um, experience within this field and know a lot about biology and, and biomimicry and the potential of it. Um, so what I want to pick your brain a bit more on is why is this so important? Why? What is the true potential of biomimicry in our current times that we're in right now of this transition to a more sustainable state for ourselves as, and also the planet that we inhabit? I think on a sort of larger scale, we have, we have nature with a lot of different organisms who have sort of tremendous superpowers. They fly, they can heal their, themselves from <laughs> cancer. They can sort of mm. carry extremely uh, heavy loads, etc. And they can be sort of glowing without sort of using any fossil fuels. There are so many cool things in nature that nature does, which we have actually done by using fossil fuels. So in a future that is more fossil fuel free, which we need to be in pretty soon if we're not going to have runaway climate change and sort of cross the number of planetary boundaries. I think we need to look more into nature to see how we can sort of gain these superpowers without using fossil fuels. Because there are so many things we can learn from nature in that respect, because nature runs on solar energy. Nature doesn't have the sort of luxury to... Uh, waste a lot of energy and resources so on a principle level there are so many different things we can learn from nature and 
we really need to do that and gain those kind of superpowers without fossil fuels because that is what nature is really good at. And then we have the system level of, as well as we were talking about, about sort of the circular economy approach. And also from a resilience point of view, I mean, I come from the Stockholm Resilience Center, 50% of my time I spend there. And it's one way of uh, showing the importance of diversity, diversity in nature, diversity of different approaches, diversity in the social systems, etc. That might seem like an economic burden at some time, but if we live in turbulent times with climate change and pandemics, etc., we need to have that insurance. And also there we can actually learn on a system level from nature to provide resilience uh, using diversity in different ways. Uh, so there are definitely lessons to learn from resilience thinking when it comes to society and how we shall try to continue coping with the turbulent times we have ahead of us. So that's mm. also an example on a system level of things we can learn from nature. How does nature cope with disturbances and how does nature sort of build in insurance to maintain important functions to continue functioning as a coral reef or a forest, etc. We can learn from that when building societies as well, actually. That's mm. part of the sort of basic idea of the Stockholm Resilience Center as well, where we study not only nature out there and human systems in here, but we try to see them as interwoven social ecological systems that we need to understand really well from many different angles with many different competencies and backgrounds to solve sustainability challenges. Absolutely. Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, With that's true. No, no, <laughs> no it, it was a broad question, so I, yeah. I really like like how you answered yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I see this type of resilience thinking happening in at least some uh, aspects of uh, regenerative farming practices, where people are really bringing into diversity into their mindsets to both from an economical standpoint to be diversified uh, on the market for different seasons, et cetera, but also to be resilient if something should go wrong uh, from any perspective that they have their resilience built into uh, how they grow and their business model, essentially. Yeah, the food sector is so interesting from that point of view. I mean, we have been more <laughs> influenced by how industries work when producing our food for a long time. And now we need to go back to another kind of thinking, but not mm. only going back. It's also about modern ecology being influencing mm. the regenerative farming or agroecological approach in food pr production, etc. So it's definitely extremely important to start being inspired more by natural ecosystems again when mm. we produce our food. And going from monocultures, and we cannot perhaps rely on fossil fuel inputs in the future, like fertilizers and all the other things that we need, like pesticides and all the energy requirements, etc. So we need to rethink that to continue to produce food that is healthy mm. for a growing population without crossing planetary boundaries. So uh, at the Stockholm Resilience Center, food is definitely uh, one of the main focuses right now because mm. of that. Yeah, I think both me and Jonathan also find that to be a fascinating topic and hopefully something we will dive, dive deeper into here on the podcast as well, because food is so fundamental to us being alive. And uh, it's also interesting to see this shift in, in people to see how can we do farming as custodians for the ecosystems rather than extractors and consumers of it. Mm. And so I just find that shift fascinating. But I wanted to ask also, as we have a 
communicator on the show here today that is there any like best practices or tips and tricks that you have to be able to convey the sometimes complex topics or the complex science into something that everyone can understand and grasp well one of the key aspects is uh, of course you can't communicate to everyone (laughs) simultaneously you need to i mean that that is kind of a cliche of course among communicators that is really important to know your target groups or audiences of course and you need to communicate in different ways depending on the target uh, groups. And one thing, for instance, uh, we were sort of touching upon that in the beginning of our talk about sort of communicate the doom and gloom or going more into sort of the vision or the positive aspects of it. And I think that is really depending on the, the kind of target group you have. If I talk to decision makers with, that have a lot of power, whether it is in the political system or in business system, I think you can really talk about uh, the risks and the dangers, etc., in a really sort of convincing and uh, really harsh way. But when you talk to younger people, you also have to talk about sort of the possibilities and what you can do about it in another way. So that kind of balance, I think, is always important. But other than that, I really try to sort of communicate the problem, but also then start talking directly after that about the long-term vision that could be positive. There might be a lot of sacrifices right now we need to do if we listen to the science, as Greta says we should do. But what kind of community, what kind of society do we want to have uh, in 100 years? What are the sort of positive vision for that? It's also really important to talk about and sort of how we can, not only describing the problems, but also describing the solutions that are out there. Mm. And that is extremely important, I think, when you communicate sustainability science, because we have had a sort of tendency to focus a lot on the problems and how complex everything is. But out of complexity thinking, sometimes really simple and beautiful solutions can come up. So we need to talk about not only the nightmare we want to sort of avoid, but also the the, the, the dreams we have for the future. So. I have a dream, mm-hmm. not only I have a nightmare, that is one important aspect, I think. And then within Albaeco that I work with, we have tried to communicate to people that normally don't care about sustainability issues by sort of connecting the environmental issues to health, welfare, and things like that, that people are interested in. So that is also part of the approach of ecological economics to show that it can be good it can make perfect economic sense to be good stewards of nature in the long run because you get things back. So, mm. and, and in the Eat Lancet Commission, are talking about the Resilience Center again and the work we do when it comes to sustainable food production. We, in that project, are talking a lot about what is healthy both for you and the planet. So there are like co-benefits that we try to communicate. And not only sort of pointing finger and saying that everybody is eating unhealthy and it's also unhealthy for the planet, turning that around, what can you eat if you want to eat something that is good for you and the planet? So that is one trick, of course, using way when communicating this. Mm. Yeah, I think I think you touched on a very important point there too. One big part of this transition is for us to dare to, to be a bit utopic, so to say, to, to a dream and to visualize that ideal society and lifestyle in the future that is more sustainable and healthy both to ourselves and the, and the planet we we inhabit so i think it was a 
a, a great, great response and a, such an important factor in, in all of this, Frederick. Thank you. We definitely need to talk about the problems and the crisis as well. Yeah. But we need to also, in the next sentence or two, talk about what we can do about it, I think. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, we we say this a lot, me and Melchior, that we, we want to to highlight the positive and like be very optimistic and stuff. But uh, at the same time, you can't just uh, shove your head down the ground and just be positive and then we, it will uh, turn out great by itself. You, need, you no. of course, you need to address it. But I think the balance there is, is so important. Uh, to, That's why to... I think it's so perfect that uh, Fridays for the Future and Greta and that movement exist. We keep sort of reminding us of the crisis we are in. So mm. we, we, we've been talking within science, we've been talking about that crisis for a long time. So it's good that they keep reminding about that and we can start focusing more on the solutions. What can we do mm. to help the coming generations? Because they say that you guys should listen to us. So. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Okay, and uh, lastly, Frederick, what would you like to encourage to listeners throughout this decade of action? I mean, go out in nature. <laughs> it's mm. good for you. And you can also find some pretty nice solutions out there to the problems we are facing. And there's so much research showing that it's actually good for your mental health, for your physical health, etc., to go out in nature. So... And especially, I mean, and if you live in an urban environment, make sure to try to have an influence on your local politicians to make sure that you have good green areas nearby and that they are planting more trees in your community, etc. So try to reconnect more to the biosphere and nature because that could be good for you and it can be good for the future of <laughs> also others on this beautiful planet. Mm, yep. A very simple yet powerful tool, I would say. So this is the place in the episode where if you want listeners to find out more about what you have been doing, what you have been working with, uh, where would you advise them to look at? I mean, of course, it would be extremely uh, welcome if people read my book <laughs> because mm -hmm. it sort of summarizes the thoughts I have on biomimicry. So that's one source, of course, then Uppfinningsrike Planeten in Swedish. It's not available in English yet, unfortunately, but hopefully in the near future. So the ingenious planet or the innovative planet, or I don't really know what to call it in English. We'll see. Maybe you can come up with some good ideas. <laughs> and then, of course, the, the websites of the Stockholm Resilience Center it's, uh, and Alba Echo, uh, where there's a lot of information on the things I've been doing the last 25 years or so. Uh, so. Awesome. Fantastic. We'll, we'll make sure to put everything in the, the description below as well. All right. Thanks a lot, Frederick, for today. It was a really nice uh, conversation and uh, a lot of new enlightening information about biomimicry. Thanks a lot for, for that. Thanks for having me. And good luck with the podcast in the future. Thank you. Thank Take you. Care. All the rest. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Decade Podcast. I would like to ask you to reflect on anything in this episode that impacted you or left an impression that you could take with you in this decade of action. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend or in your network on social media. 
And as always, feel free to reach out with feedback, questions or topics you would like us to cover. You can reach us through our social media or on the decade podcast at gmail.com. And we hope to see you more further down the road throughout this decade. Thank you. Until next time. Thank you.